Well, good morning, everybody. It's a, it's a special day because this is Joy Week of Advent. So each week on Advent, there's a different kind of theme for the week. You see them around the room, hope, love, joy, peace. And today we celebrate the joy of the Lord. And one of the ways that we've been doing that is with something that we call Donnie's Amen Sermon Bingo. Now, I have to tell you the origin story of this. We only do it once a year. Um, that's all I could take, I'm sure, um, of, of doing this. But the origin story is this. I used to make a joke in my sermons. I, I don't know if, if you know this, but this like first Sunday in February will be my 13-year anniversary as the pastor of this church from being here. Yeah, pretty cool. Thank you. And over the years, certain patterns emerge in the way that you talk. You know, it's like, yeah, this is true for you. This is true for, for anybody. But after a lot of years, you know, I have stacks of old sermons. I mean, I have like folders full of old sermons. And it's like, you know, just I, I speak in front of you every Sunday. And there's certain things that kind of patterns emerge. So I used to joke about how often I would quote C.S. Lewis in my sermons, one of my favorite writers. And I did it so often, I would quote C.S. Lewis and bring him up because I just love the way he words certain concepts and he, he really resonates with me in the way that he speaks about certain things, that I decided one Sunday randomly to say, if you're playing Donnie Sermon Bingo, you can fill in the square that says Donnie quotes C.S. Lewis. It was just a silly joke I thought of on the spur of the moment. It, I thought nothing of it, but I continued to say it. I said it several times in different sermons. And then one day, after one of these services where I said, if you're playing Donnie Sermon Bingo... My nephew Cody walks up with me, walks up to me and, and like shows me a Donnie Sermon bingo card that he made of things that I tend to do during sermons. And so, and I'm sure he was listening to the sermon too, but, but he also made this uh, Donnie Sermon bingo card. And so we kind of just filed that away in the back of our minds, thought it was funny. But then one day we were having a planning meeting where we were talking about what we're going to do on Christmas and um, this idea of celebrating Advent and the joy of the Christmas season this idea came to that table around the meeting that we were having. What if that was a real thing that we all did on a, on a Sunday? No, we can't do that. Like, that was my initial response. It was like, I don't know, how would you do that, you know? And it became a real thing. So four years ago, on Joy Week of Advent, we had our very first Donnie Christmas sermon bingo. So these are things I tend to do during a message, uh, references I'll tend to make. Um, I'll try to be real obvious about it, by the way, sometimes um, with, with things that you should fill in or squares or whatever. But these are things that you might hear in a sermon or things you might see me do in a sermon, like smile or something or drink some water, that sort of thing. So that's Donnie's Sermon Bingo. I've never heard of any other churches doing this, but it's kind of our tradition here. We've done this for four years now. Um, so we're going to do it again this year. So Donnie Christmas Sermon Bingo is, has already begun. And I'm going to jump into the sermon. Oh, let me say too, man, very important note. The second year we did Donnie Christmas Sermon Bingo, I did not say, hey, if you get bingo, you, the correct thing to say out loud is amen. I didn't say that. I said, I think I told everyone to say bingo. And so during the sermon, like this is, many of you remember this. Many of you remember this. You were here that Sunday. Uh, people were just saying bingo all over the place during the room while I'm trying to give a sermon. And that was hard for me to give a sermon while people are yelling bingo. Um, so the, the, the correct thing you say when you, get a, when you get the three squares in a row is you say amen out loud. And guess what? You're actually allowed to say this any Sunday, not just on Donnie's sermon, <laughs> bingo Sunday. Amen. A amen. Amen means, it's a Hebrew word, and it means let it be, or it is so. It's this kind of way of agreeing with some statement. You know, it's what we say at the end of prayers and, and things like that. 
Uh, but this is, this is how we play the game. So you say amen um, if you get a bingo, and Pam will be walking around at the end of the service, after the service is dismissed, with treats. So if you did get a bingo, you, you got three squares in a row, let Pam know, and she's got a little treat for you uh, to celebrate your win on the bingo card. Okay, so I think I explained it all. Oh, by the way, let me just say, too, one more thing. Um, if, in case anyone's like, oh, man, this is, I, I feel funny about this because I think we're supposed to take church seriously and all that. And I, I would agree at, at some level, and, and let me say it this way. There are certain things we take very seriously. The holiness of, of God, our mission as a church, we take people's eternity seriously. We take our, our, the message of Jesus seriously. But one of the things that we don't take super seriously is ourselves. Like we kind of, we're, we're okay with not taking ourselves very seriously. And I, I love this kind of, uh, that, that we can ha- laugh together, we can have fun together. So just a little disclaimer there. Now let's get to the real sermon. Here we go. We've been talking, uh, we started last Sunday with this new series called Christmas Presents, and the idea of this series is we're celebrating and remembering this idea of God with us. This comes from Matthew chapter 1, it's one of the titles for Jesus, that he will be Emmanuel, God with us. And this is a profound idea, just if you know nothing about the Bible, you would think about the concept of God who would come to be with his people, that's profound. But when we put it in the context of the larger Bible story, we understand just how special this is and just how important this concept is that God came to be with us. We we started last Sunday by talking about how this was lost, the presence of God amongst his people and this relational walking through uh, life and walking through this world with us in a personal and relational kind of way which is how we were created. That's actually what we were created to enjoy with God, is to have a personal and relational connection with our Creator. But we talked about last Sunday how, how sin broke this world into a billion pieces. And so many things were broken because of the fallout of sin. We talked about how um, you know, sin entered the world and death entered the world. We talked about how all of this breakdown that came from the brokenness of sin, there's breakdown in relationships with other people, there's breakdown in relationships with even our own selves, breakdown in relationship with creation, and ultimately a breakdown in our relationship with God. And people were, the Adam and Eve first hid from God's presence. They themselves kind of hid away from God's presence. They were afraid of God where before they would, used to walk with God and have a close personal relationship with him, but they began to hide from his presence, and then eventually they were driven out of God's presence and, and sent away out of, the, out of the Garden of Eden. There's a longing, though, that we all experience, whether or not we could put words to it, whether or not we would connect it in that way, but this longing to live in the presence of God, that we a longing for that brokenness to be restored, and we all have a sense of, hey, things in the world are not how they should be in the world. Like, we're all aware of that. Not a, not a person has not been touched by the reality of, of the fact that sin is not just an out there problem, it's an in here problem, it's just a, we feel it constantly, the brokenness of this fallen world. You know, theologians, we talked about, talked about the transcendence and the imminence of God, we mentioned this last Sunday. The transcendence simply means that God's presence is everywhere, anywhere in God's creation, anywhere in the universe, like God, God's presence fills the universe, he's, he's everywhere um, and anywhere. You know, David talked about this in the Psalms, like, where can I go for your, from your presence? Where can I flee from, from you? Like, you're, you're there. You're, anywhere I would go, you're there. You can't leave God's presence. But, but that's sort of, not, that's not something we necessarily feel all the time or necessarily something we're aware of all the time. 
the theologians use a second word, the imminence of God, meaning this relational and personal kind of closeness that God wants to have in his creation. And this was how we used to walk back in the garden. This was what we long for. It's in his presence that we're most at home. In his presence, we are most fulfilled. I remember uh, when I was in the Navy, I was stationed on the other side of, all right, amen. I remember when I was in uh, stationed on the other side of the country. Amen. Amen indeed. Uh, and I, we were headed into the Christmas season, and I remember hearing the song, the Bing Crosby song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, and that song wrecked me, and I was reading about the story of this, like, you know, being so far, my family was in Arizona, I was in Virginia, and it was this just kind of longing to be home, longing to be with my people. I was so far away and, and just wanted to be home with them, and that song was written during World War II, and it's like written from the perspective of a, of a service member being overseas far from home and wishing to be home with their family. This is this idea, if you've ever felt homesick before, you ever felt like so far from home, it's this idea of wanting to be, we want to be home ultimately, and we are most at home in God's presence. This is where we are created to live. That's how, where we have the most joy, the most fulfillment. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So once God's presence was this personal and relational place, but it was lost in the fall at that, on that, at that time. And God went through extraordinary links to bring it back. And then we closed last Sunday's message talking about where the story is headed, what God has ultimately planned. We, uh, kind of a glimpse of God's good plan in Revelation, I think it was Revelation 21, we talked about how the dwelling of, the dwelling of God is with man. That God is making all things new. That's the future that God has planned for his people. But how do you fill in the gap between kind of where everything's headed and the fall where things were lost? How do we fill the gap between the beginning and the end? Well, it started after the fall by, by God calling one man to experience his presence and to have this relational presence with him. And that man's name was Abraham. Abraham was called out of this far off country and he was brought into this new land. God called him to go somewhere without telling him where he was sending him yet, but he just, I want you to go and, and set out. And Abraham leaves, you know, modern-day Iraq, which is where, where he lived, and, and made his way into what would become the promised land, this new place where God would build from his, from his family, from this one man, a nation. And the place where Abraham initially met with God was this place where Abraham built this altar and later, many years later, his grandson Jacob would see a ladder coming down from heaven on that very same spot. There's this, this God coming to man, these angels ascending and descending at this spot. And Jacob was so impacted by it that he said, this place I'm going to call Bethel or Bethel, which means the house of God. This place is where God has come, come, to, come down and come to dwell. And this is like a preview of what God would be doing with his with his people. Jacob had a large family, and this story is told in the, in the book of Genesis. But Jacob's family, after years, began to grow and grow, and this, this promise that God gave to Abraham about this nation being created from this one man began to be fulfilled during Jacob's time. He had 12 sons, you know, and had this just large, uh, large family. And then years passed, and, and Jacob and his family moved to Egypt. They left this, this homeland where they, where they were and moved to Egypt. And after many years passed, their status changed from being these favored guests that moved to Egypt to escape a famine from, from that to now being viewed as a threat. They continued to grow. Now there were thousands of them. And they were eventually put into slavery. 
And it's how they lived for many years. The, the nation of Israel, as they were called by this time. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and this family that grew became a nation, and 400 years pass. And they're put into such slavery and such hardship that, that they, they call out to God. We don't really have any indication that they had like an ongoing relationship with God. It, was, it seems to be more of like a distant memory that they had the founder of their nation used to talk with God or he met with God or had this relationship with God. They did not seem to be, from the descriptions in Scripture, practicing people of God who, who really followed him. They more, more than likely were just kind of absorbed into the Egyptian culture and worshipped the pagan gods that Egypt, Egypt worshipped. But they called out for God in the bitterness of their slavery, and God sent them uh, someone that would help lead them out of Israel with the, with the mighty power of God. He didn't feel equipped, he didn't feel special, didn't feel prepared, but God sent a man named Moses to, to go into Egypt to speak to Pharaoh. Moses, who grew up as a Hebrew, but also understood the Egyptian culture, and he goes and he begins to call out and, and says, let my people go. And you know the, if you know the story from the book of Exodus, uh, you know how the story goes. But God brings them to the edge of the Red Sea. They leave after these ten plagues. And they make it to the edge of the Red Sea. And they're in trouble at this point because the Egyptian army has second thoughts about them leaving, losing their whole labor force from Egypt. They're concerned about the effects that's going to have on their economy and how are they going to build stuff now that all their slaves are gone. And they're at the edge of the Red Sea trying to figure out how, how are we going to, how are we going to, what are we going to do here? We've got an Egyptian army coming. We're told that the presence of God, though, settled between the army and the people of, of Israel. And on the edge of the Red Sea, they, Moses cries out to God. And there's this word that I introduced you to a few weeks ago. It was created by J.R.R. Tolkien. He's, he's a, he made this word everyone, as everyone looks to their cards. Okay. There's this word, eucatastrophe. Amen, indeed. Amen. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien had created this word. He's like, we have this word catastrophe that means like when everything falls apart kind of in a moment. It's this, it's, it's a bad thing, right? But he said a you catastrophe would be like the opposite of that, where everything falls into place in a moment, where a dramatic rescue happens. When you feel like all hope is lost, everything changes in this dramatic moment. And, and this is one of those moments on the edge of the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts and the nation passes through. Rather than being destroyed by this army, they're protected by the presence of God and they're sent through and they make it to this place called Mount Sinai, where Moses had talked with God, where Moses had, had spent time with him, and God told Moses when he was initially calling him, you will know that what I'm saying is true because you're going to come back with the people of Israel to this very place, gives them this promise, and now it's fulfilled, and they're, they're at this mountain. Now, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're turning to Exodus, we're going to be in Exodus 19, and also 20, and then in 33, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. And, and you, electronic devices are fine too, but there's something about the, the sound of pages turning that I just really enjoy in the you know, physical Bibles. A amen. Yeah, so Exodus chapter 19 is where we'll be in a moment. So I want to I let you know kind of what leads to this point. They, they have this time of preparation. Moses says, I want you to take two days to prepare. Cleanse yourself consecrate yourself. You're going to meet with God. You're going to hear the voice of God coming from the mountain. So the people are gathered at this place called Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, we, we have a description of what they saw that day. It says on the morning of the third day, these previous two days, they were consecrating themselves and preparing themselves to meet God. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Thousands of people, they're trembling. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. After a little bit more preparation, God tells Moses to tell the people, you need to keep a safe distance. There needs to be like a perimeter around the mountain. Because his holiness of, uh, is so vast and so powerful that it would consume, you know, anything that wasn't holy that would, would match up with his holiness. And so in, ver- in chapter 20, God begins to speak and he gives them the Ten Commandments. He begins to speak out and they hear his voice. This nation gathered around this mountain, seeing this incredible sight of a mountain that looks like it's on fire. Moses goes up into that and has this conversation with God and then this voice they hear. But I want, you to, I want you to hear the response of the people to that. And to do that, we're going to fast forward a little bit to Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 18 to 21. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled And they stood far off, and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear God, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is an interesting moment here, where they see God's presence come down. But Moses says, like, I want you to, don't, don't be afraid of God, but I want you to fear God, which is an interesting concept, right? He compares being afraid of God with actually fearing God, and it's this kind of healthy sense of awe. And he talks about sin. He's like, I, I want you to fear God in the sense that you don't want to sin. You want to be holy. You want to obey what God wants you to do. But I don't, don't be afraid of him in that way. Don't be terrified of him. But they're, they're like, hey, Moses, you talk to him. You know, I remember being a kid, and if you had to talk to a teacher or something like that, you had your whole classroom and your, your peers, and you're like, want to ask the teacher this question, amen, but we wanna, we're afraid. Uh, and so we, 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 we elect you to go talk to the teacher. You know, you go talk to the teacher and ask the teacher this question. We're, we're, we're kind of too nervous to ask this question, or maybe it's like, you know, talking to a girl, <laughs> that kind of thing, like, you go talk to her. Um, but this is, this is like this moment. They're like a, a, a group of middle school boys, you know, voting, Moses, you go talk to him. We're, we're afraid. We don't want to stand in his presence. There's something about God's presence that they're still running from at this point. And I get it, right? That description is, is amazing when you hear what, what that was like to, to be in the presence of God and to see his holiness and his power and what they would have seen that day. It's hard for us to even imagine what that might have been like. But they, but they run, they, they pull away, they withdraw, they don't, they're afraid of what, what the implications are. Like we, they're, they're worried that literally they might die. They're like, if we keep hearing the voice of God, it is so powerful, I don't know that I can take it. Amen. Amen. 
Nancy Guthrie has a wonderful book called Even Better Than Eden, and in that she tells the story of the, the Bible, and, and kind of a, she has a chapter that's specifically on what we're talking about during this series, and it's been really helpful, but in that chapter she talks about, she says, the story of the Bible is more about God's desire to be with us than our desire to be with him. And that's a reality. God's drawing near to his, his people in this moment, and what he desires is to be with them, and they're conflicted about that. I'm sure they appreciate, they're thankful for God's deliverance, but they pull away still from his presence. And, and I think we, we can identify with this. We have this desire, I think, sometimes to keep God at a safe distance or to compartmentalize, where we feel like, hey, God is over here in this area of my life, but I'm concerned about what would happen if he's involved in my entire life. Like, what are the implications of that? What, what would happen if God had access to all of me? And like, would I be consumed? Can I trust God? Is God really good? I mean, there's all of these things that sort of come up. And Moses acts as something that will be important in the Bible, and it's this. He's a mediator. He's someone that will be a go-between between the people and God. This is what happens. They don't continue to hear the, the voice of God coming from this mountain. They, they, they do begin to keep God at a safe distance, so to speak, starting at this moment. But the people of God need, need someone that will go between the holiness and the power of God and sinful humans, and this mediator kind of idea where Moses continues to have this close relationship with God, but for the nation, they do distance themselves, and God distances themselves from the, from the nation. Between these chapters, uh, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 33, and it is in this that God gives them instructions about what, um, what, what he wants them to do, the tabernacle that he wants them to build, and things like this. And then in Exodus chapter 33, let me get there myself. There's, before we get to this, there's this, the golden calf incident. So if you know about this from, from the story, they begin to worship a golden calf. They're unsure if Moses is ever going to come down from that mountain. God's been speaking to him personally up there and giving him instruction about how he wants to be worshipped and how he wants to organize this nation. And they're like, I don't think, I think Moses is gone. I think God did just consume him. What we were concerned about happening to us personally, I think we think that happened to Moses. He's not back yet. What do we do? We need a God that's going to go before us because that God destroyed Moses is what they're concerned about. And they begin to worship. They form, they craft this golden calf. They're like, this is our God now. We're going to worship this God. And, and God sees what's happening, of course. God sees everything. But then Moses sees what's happening, and it's this moment of, of judgment on the nation. And then God's response to this in Exodus chapter 33, we're going to read this whole chapter because it's important for us to understand the, some of these concepts that are talked about here. But Exodus chapter 33, we're going to start in verse 1 and read right down to the end of that. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. 
Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses as until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and, will give you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name of the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So let's stop there, and we're going to talk about kind of what we see going on in this passage. First of all, we see God, the holiness of God contra- contrasted with the sinfulness of Israel at this point. Israel's been worshiping false gods for, for hundreds of years probably at this point. And they're being taught now. God's drawing them out of that. God's showing them what he wants and how he wants them to live and how seriously his holiness is and how they should take that, take that seriously and understand that their God is a holy God and they see the visible presence of God, this pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. Interesting that they have this tent now that Moses will meet with God at and it's outside the camp. You gotta go outside the camp to the tent of meeting and people had respect for God but they were distant from him. Moses would leave the camp area. They would go. They'd see the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire, depending on when it was, go at the entrance of the tent. And then God, God and Moses would speak. It says, face to face like a man speaks to his friend. And we think that, obviously, face to face, I think, is a kind of a turn of phrase, right? Because then God later says, no one shall see my face. My face will not be seen. When I, by the way, when I read a long passage of Scripture, I get thirsty sometimes. So i got to take a little drink of water. Excuse me for a moment. Mm-hmm. Amen, indeed. Yeah. So, Moses has, has several requests, right? First of all, we see that this presence of God, this relational presence, God has this now with Moses. The nation is keeping him at a distance in, at some level, but God is relating with Moses in this relational way now. And Moses and God would have talks. 
They would go and, and talk in this tent, and people respected that, and they saw it. Now, on, in this conversation that's recorded for us in verse, from verses 12 um, through kind of later in the chapter there, Moses has several requests. He says, one, show me your ways. I want to understand how to follow you. I want to understand what you, what you want, like how to relate, relate to you. Show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. But then the second one, of course, that really fits with our series title, Christmas Presence, he says, give us your presence. Please go with us. Don't ever, don't ever leave your people, because that's what God was saying at the beginning of this, right? Like, I, I, I'll send an angel. You guys will get an angel to help you. But if, I, if I'm with you in this way that I have been with you, it, it may not go well for the, for the people, right? There's so much sin, and they're so broken that, that this is... It could potentially be bad for them to have the presence of God among them constantly. But Moses knows, he says, we have an absolute dependence on the presence of God. We need you. Don't, we're, I don't want to go anywhere without you. We need your presence with us. There's this absolute dependence upon God. We see again here that the, the importance of this mediator, right? That Moses is the one having this conversation on behalf of the people. He's speaking on their behalf and speaking to a holy God. A mediator is important. A mediator will play an important role in Scripture. And in fact, Hebrews 12 talks about this role of a mediator like Moses is performing here. But we have the ultimate example of this in Jesus. In Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24, describe Jesus' role as mediator in this way, speaking about this Mount Sinai experience, this mountain covered in smoke and fire and all of this. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24 talks about it this way. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The author of Hebrews contrasts these two mountains, Mount, Mount Sinai that was covered with smoke and people were terrified of and they kept this distance from to now this other mountain, Mount Zion, that we boldly approach because of Jesus, this mediator and the sacrifice for us, his poured out blood for us that paid the penalty for our sins so that now we can draw near to God, the judge of all. And it's this, he paints this picture of the, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels all. Like we get to walk into that because of our mediator, because of Jesus, who cleanses and purifies because of his salvation, because of his work, that we get to go into God's presence. You know, spiritually now, like to be in the presence of God, to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and then eternally one day. Moses' final request for God is, he says, I want to see your glory. So would you show me your glory? I want to see um, this. And it, and it, it seems that he, he has a desire for it to be assured in some way. Like, God, can you prove that what you said, that your presence is going to go with us? And, and can you give, as a sign of that, please show me your glory. And God says, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll 
place my hand over you, and you could see some of my glory, but you can't handle all of the glory. He gives this private kind of assurance of, of, his, of his glory and his promise for him to, ne- to never leave them and to continue to be with them during their wilderness, wilderness journey. And then publicly, they will get an assurance of God's presence among them by the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle, they have instructions that came between Exodus 20 and Exodus 33 about what God wanted, this tent that would be built where God would be God's dwelling place among them. And the instructions for that are, are kind of hard to read sometimes. Like you see, you see the, you know, it's this specific way, crafted in this way, and I want it to look like this. And then like Leviticus is all the worshiping, like how, how they should worship God's people. In fact, or how God's people should worship him. But I, I came across a meme that I want to show you that I, that I just love because we do these Bible reading plans every year, right? We want to read through the Bible every year. Um, and let's go ahead and put that up. My plan to finally read the entire Bible this year. Leviticus coming through. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. I think, yeah, all right. I think we all know what it's like to get to those tougher passages of Scripture where it's like God commanded them to build the the altar of incense in this way, and the candlestick should be like this, and all of these things should be, and it's like, and then, and then a few chapters later, and it's like, and they built it like this, and it goes into the same level of description. It's like exactly as God wanted them to build it, they built it. But what we should see when we read those passages of Scripture is the description of the tabernacle, this candlestick that looks like a tree of life, and the beauty of the colors and all of this, that it seems to be a place like sort of a return to Eden, a place where God's presence dwelt that they could see. Like this is what God has planned for his people, and this is God's presence coming to dwell amongst his people. And guess what? He's taking them to this place, this promised land that over and over we're told it's a land flowing with milk and honey, which sounds a lot like Eden too. That there's this plan that God's put in place to bring people back to like this Eden-like way of living. And it's captured on this kind of small scale in the tabernacle. It's beautiful. It would have looked in, in, incredible. It would have been amazing to behold. And then we see that, that God is going to dwell when we're told about how the tabernacle, you know, some of these passages that are hard to, hard, hard to read through sometimes or we might get stuck with. And by the way, you get a new chance. We're doing a new Bible reading plan coming up here. You'll hear about that in a couple weeks. Um, when we get stuck on some of those passages, if we can kind of zoom out and see the big picture a little bit of where, what, what's going on here and where this, where this is headed, we're told that God's presence would dwell in the tabernacle. They would literally see a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night that settled over the Holy of Holies, this part of the tabernacle that would be this, this place where God dwelt among them. In fact, I think, tech team, do we have a uh, picture of the what this might have looked like. I love this picture. It's this shining, you know, imagine, imagine this. Like if you're wondering like, hey, I wonder if God's still with us. Let's leave that picture up for a moment. I wonder, is God still with us? And then you go, I don't know, let me look outside the tent. You peer out through the tent like, yep, God's still with us. Like there's a pillar of fire over the Holy of Holies. Like that's pretty cool that you could see, you could imagine like, uh, and, and we, you might ask sometimes similar questions like, is God, is God with me? Does God know what I'm going through? Is God's presence with me? There's, as much as we'd like to see something like that, 
just regularly around. We, we, have, we, we have something else that God's given us to assure us of his presence and something that is, should give us confidence and hope and help when we're wondering about these kind of things. And to, to, to explain what that is, I want to read a passage from 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 16 to 19. This is the Apostle Peter talking about his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're up on this mountain and they see uh, Moses and Elijah up on the mountain and they hear a voice from God. And Peter describes this moment to, to make a spiritual point. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In case you missed it, Let's talk about what Peter's saying here. He says, we were on the mountain where we heard the voice of God. We saw Jesus in his glory. And we, we heard these words, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice. Peter said, I heard that personally. We, we didn't, like this isn't some crafted story we're telling. This is reality. This is what we experience. But he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So he's saying, as powerful as this moment with, with Jesus on the mountain was, hearing the voice of God, seeing for yourself, like, yeah, is God present? Yes, God is with us. He says, you have something more fully confirmed. You have something better than what Peter had, which is the word of God. We have God's word. If you wonder, is God present with me? Is God with me? We have his words that assure us and remind us and teach us, yes, he is with us. And he speaks through his word. He teaches us about himself and, and, and reminds us of truth and shows us how to live and all these things. He says, which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We have something even more sure than the dwelling presence of God and the, in the tabernacle, we have, his, we have his words. God is present to us in his word. In the tabernacle, in, in this, what they're given in the nation of Israel at this time as they're wandering through the wilderness, is they're given this visible presence of God. But there's still this distance. They, they, the tents are kind of around it, and, and they keep a safe distance away from the tabernacle, so to speak. But God is still distant. But where we are headed as we are celebrating Christmas and what we're remembering and celebrating is that in the Christmas story, God came to us. No distance. There, there, the, he closed the gap. And God was the one that had to do that. God was the one that had to come near. And that's exactly what we celebrate in the Christmas story. God with us. That's wonderful and it's good news. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this ability to know you through, through your word. And we're so grateful that we can have a relationship with you, that we can relate to you in this way. And Lord, I pray that as we worship you now, you'd help us to celebrate how good you are and how wonderful 
um, you are in the joy of this Christmas season. I thank you so much for this time together with my family, Lord, my church family. So grateful for those gathered in this room and those joining us online. Lord, you're, you're building a special community here, and I'm so happy to be a part of it, and I'm, I'm just um, in awe of you and what you're doing. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you bless these people, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas. Help us to see you as the holy, righteous God that you are, and to help us have this, this sense of healthy awe of you and respect for you. But then, Lord, help us to draw near to you through Jesus. We thank you for that wonderful news that, that, Lord, you drew near to us even when we sometimes run from you. And, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who has yet to put their faith in you and, and begin to walk through this life in that relational way that you want us to walk with you, Lord, that you'd bring them into your family right now. You'd help them to say yes to you and to receive the, the gift of salvation that you offer, Lord. And Lord, help them to know you. Your, your word says that by, by grace through faith, we begin this relationship. It's, it's we, we put our trust in you. We don't have to have everything figured out, but we accept the gift of grace. There's nothing we could do to earn or deserve a relationship with you. It's all been done already by Jesus on the cross, but we can just accept it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help anyone who's either watching online or here in this room, Lord, that hasn't done that yet. I pray that today would be the day for them. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to, to draw near to you and also help us to celebrate the wonder of what this means. God with us. You didn't leave us. You came for us to bring us back to you. And I praise you and I thank you for that wonderful news. And thank you for the story of scripture, how you were putting this plan together and the, the, the drawing near that started in the Garden of Eden even when people were hiding from you but continued, Lord, through the story of the people of God. So we praise you, Lord. We celebrate that. We're thankful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.